So right now, at this very moment, former President Donald Trump is giving his first extended, extended public remarks since he was indicted on Tuesday for trying to overturn the 2020 election. At this event tonight, Trump has been railing against the Department of Justice and multiple federal and the multiple federal criminal indictments that have been brought against him by that department. He has called out Marxist prosecutors for what he referred to as racist in reverse enforcement, racist, racist in reverse, just making sure you get that racist and reverse enforcement of the law, which presumably means racism against white people. According to his prepared remarks, there's also some room in there for fiery remarks about the deep state and crooked Joe Biden. And you get the picture. Now, because Mr. Trump is currently running for president, conventional wisdom might suggest that he would make these remarks on the campaign trail, maybe in an early primary state like Iowa or New Hampshire or South Carolina. But Mr. Trump decided that his first major post-indictment public address would take place in the state of Alabama. And that is notable for a couple of reasons. To begin with, one of the most important and honestly under-discussed parts of the Trump indictment is that special counsel Jack Smith chose to charge Mr. Trump under Section 241 of Title 18 of the U.S. Criminal Code. If you don't know what that is just offhand, that statute is part of a group of laws called the Enforcement Acts, and they date all the way back to the year 1870. The laws were passed in the wake of the Civil War to combat the rising threat of the newly established Ku Klux Klan. At the time, the Klan was engaged in a campaign of violent terrorism, terrorism designed to disrupt free and fair elections. And that included preventing state officials from counting and certifying the votes of newly freed black men. Now, it is worth remembering here that Trump's own family has a dark history when it comes to the Klan. In 1927, Donald Trump's father was arrested at a Klan rally in Queens, according to the Washington Post. Trump Sr. was charged with refusing to disperse from a parade when ordered to do so, according to a contemporaneous news report. Donald Trump has denied this incident, which, by the way, took place before he was born. He has denied it ever happened. But the through line here is hard to ignore. This is what Will Bunch from the Philadelphia Inquirer wrote this week. In using the 1870 anti-Klan law to prosecute Trump, Jack Smith and his team are making a powerful statement. There is a straight line of inhumane racial hierarchy from the hooded killers of 1870 to a 1927 KKK march through Queens, right up to the twisted presidency of Donald Trump that ended in deadly violence in 2021. And now, The man charged under that anti-Klan law is taking his campaign to Alabama. Alabama, the state where the Ku Klux Klan was headquartered up until 1987 and where the Klan's legacy of racist attacks on democracy is very much alive today. Tonight, Trump was in Alabama to accept the endorsement of Alabama's entire Republican congressional delegation. Just sit with that for a second. After being indicted for trying to overthrow democracy, Every single Republican House member from Alabama still endorsed Donald Trump tonight. But that is not the only controversy that those members of Congress are dealing with. Right now, that same congressional delegation is at the center of a national fight over the disenfranchisement of black voters. Now, one in four people in the state of Alabama is black, but only one of the seven congressional districts in Alabama has a majority of black voters. That imbalance was so 
plainly obvious that in June, the very conservative Supreme Court, the same one where John Roberts is chief justice, that court said Alabama Republicans had gone too far. And the court ordered Alabama to create a new majority black district. But last month, Alabama Republicans came back with the new congressional map. And guess what? It still did not include a new majority black district. They just decided to defy the Supreme Court on this one. And now Donald Trump, again, the man who was just charged under the 1870s anti-Klan law, is in Alabama to be honored by a state Republican Party trying to nullify federal voting rights laws to disenfranchise black voters. Trump is there to accept the endorsement of a congressional delegation that the Supreme Court says is illegally constituted to rob black voters of their rights. And Trump is doing this standing alongside Senator Tommy Tuberville, one of the senators former President Trump tried to phone on January 6th to carry out Trump's overthrow of democracy, a senator who recently spent weeks denying that white nationalists are racist, a senator who is currently engaged in his very own one-man anti-democratic campaign to hold up U.S. military nominations to further his own political agenda. Donald Trump could not be sending a clearer signal about what kind of America he envisions as he fights these new charges and seeks to take power once again. Joining us now is Charles Coleman, former prosecutor and now a civil rights attorney. Also with us is New York Times columnist Michelle Goldberg. I don't know, Charles, when it was announced that of all the states he could be going to, Trump chooses Alabama in the wake of getting indicted on the Klan Act I, I saw a connection there that that maybe I don't know. Am I off base? Uh, I would say no. There's so much to talk about here. But the first thing that I want to say is how rich is it that Donald Trump, who is a millionaire white man, the former president of the United States, is now playing the race card? Yes. How rich is tonight that when you calling think about it, it racism in reverse? Right. Uh, beyond that, you know, Alex, I, I've got to say. It must be nice now that the veneer is gone in terms of the Republican Party no longer having to pretend that they are somehow the party of law and order. Because all we've seen is hypocritical attacks around what everyone who's responsible for upholding the law is doing in fulfilling their duty. Attacks on Fonnie Willis, who hasn't even bought a case yet. Yeah. Attacks on Alvin Bragg, attacks on Letitia James, of course, attacks on Jackson. All people who are sworn to uphold the law, there is an attack on them. And in many cases, vicious personal attacks that are deeply rooted in anti-blackness and other forms of racism. When you couple that with what's going on in Alabama and the recent controversy with the Supreme Court. And you consider that even in the wake of having a supermajority of conservative justices, the Republican House in Alabama still refuses to comply with the court order. The notion of law and order and anything that reconciles with that and consistency is completely thrown out the window. So quite frankly, it's no surprise that he went there yeah. because we're not talking about a group of people who are representative of the majority of Americans, but we are talking about a very devoted, very, very engaged yeah, cult that he base. has to play to. And that's exactly what he's doing. Yeah, I mean, to choose Alabama, which is making, I mean, I think we all remember in, in months ago when the Roberts court basically issued Alabama a more than a slap on the wrist. Mm -hmm. Pretty significant ruling in favor of racial equity. It was like, is this the same court that we've all come, come to know? 
they could say right, when you're too racist for this Supreme Court. Yes. Like, then that's <laughs> saying something. And then for Trump on the heels of this indictment, which I got to say, and we'll talk about this in a second. I felt like there was there was a not explicit, but a nod towards the the racism inherent in the, the 2020, the January 6th coup to go to Alabama and, you know, graciously accept the endorsement of the entire congressional delegation really sends a message about where the Republican Party's core is. Right. And I I believe that Donald Trump, one of his first rallies, the first time he ran for president, was in Alabama. And a signal of the sort of president that he was going to be was his early alliance with Jeff Sessions, who at the time seemed like so far out of the mainstream of the Republican Party, or at least what the Republican Party wanted to admit what the mainstream was, that there was something almost scandalous about that alliance. Although Jeff Sessions, you know, not just proved to be too um, upstanding for Donald Trump, but is now essentially the sort of median Republican <laughs> lawmaker, you know, has the, is the He's ideological profile yeah. of a median Republican lawmaker. And so, look, I think that what is what we've seen from Trump since he was indicted is, I mean, I, I kind of I feel like you're talking about white privilege at this point is such a cliche, but who else upon being indicted and kind of let out on bail on certain conditions or not on bail, let out on his own recognizance yeah. on certain conditions could then threaten all of the prosecutors that are um, that are that are that have either indicted him or or could indict him and is going to be giving this speech with one of the somebody who might very well be a witness in this criminal yes. trial, Tommy Tuberville, who he's not supposed to be talking about this case with. And I think people will be watching with bated breath to see, you know, can he get through an entire speech without um, either issuing dangerous threats or otherwise kind of walking right up to the line or crossing the line of criminality. Yeah, well, I mean, we had some prepared remarks. I think that this is still ongoing control room. You can correct me if that's wrong. And it just finished. But from what was advanced to us, he's going right up to the line in terms of these prosecutors. I do got I have to ask, though, uh, Charles, the, the 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 thing that Will Bunch is establishing in the Philadelphia Acquire, that mm-hmm. there's a through line from the 1870s Klan law to the appearance of Fred Trump at a Klan rally and the twisted presidency of Donald Trump. I mean, the, the idea that in this moment of crisis, Trump chooses to focus on what he calls racism in reverse, which is black prosecutors going after right. a white man, right? That's more than just political sloganeering, that is saying the quiet part out loud about who Donald Trump is speaking to. And I think to some degree what he wants them to do, which is focus on the blackness and focus anger in turn on that blackness. Well, Alex, it is a full throated yell to white nationalists across the country. And it's very important that we distinguish between white nationalism and sort of white supremacy. White nationalism is is extremely specific in that it refers to the notion that there are people who are not white who should not be allowed to run or even participate in the civic processes that our democracy is based on. And that's why it's so important to have this conversation because of who he's attacking and where they're positioned with respect to this process. He's attacking district attorneys. He's attacking legislators. He's attacking people who are basically at the helm of upholding our democratic institutions and at the helm of upholding these laws. And also what he's at the same 
same time doing is basically suggesting that it's okay, Alabama, if you are disenfranchising literally yes. thousands of black American voters by defying what the Supreme Court has said. That is all white nationalist rhetoric. It is not a dog whistle. It is a bullhorn. And it's important to understand that that's exactly who he's appealing to. Yeah, I'm old enough to remember when the idea that, oh, the Alabama congressional delegation may be literally disenfranchising people of color would be reason for a presidential candidate to be like, hey, maybe don't go down there and accept the the unilateral endorsement of that very same congressional delegation. Right. But if you think about the fact that Donald Trump is now running to stay out of prison, and if you think about what he's been willing, the laws and norms that he's been willing to smash just in order to get into power and what he's going and the people that he's going to disenfranchise, going to need to disenfranchise if he has any hope of winning this next election. I mean, I feel like the, you know, the gloves have never been on, but they are really off now in terms of what he's going to be willing to do in 2024. I do wonder, Charles, if I'm overstating the case here, but it's interesting to me that he really, uh, he's called Fonnie Willis a racist. He's called Alvin Bragg racist and an animal. He's animal. He's called Tish James racist and peekaboo. He's talking about racism in reverse. Jack Smith is a white man, mm-hmm. right? So I don't think the racism in reverse applies to Jack Smith. He's not talked about Jack Smith's race. He calls him deranged. To me, there's a difference when Trump shouts out the racism that he sees uh, the black prosecutors as being guilty of, that almost calls for a rebalancing of the scales from Trump supporters. Whereas calling Jack Smith deranged is sort of like, don't listen to what that guy's saying. I mean, I, I don't know whether it's, it's going too far to say, I almost hear violence in the, in the, in the calling of, of black prosecutors racist. Whereas I don't hear it in the same way when I, when he talks about Jack Smith. There is no, there is no almost. And I think it's important to understand that that is very much so out of the white nationalist playbook because part of it is a suggestion that not only are you not qualified, but then there's a sort of dehumanizing element of what those remarks do to someone who is in a position of authority. That's very intentional. This is not by accident. This is not a mistake. Donald Trump is very clear about what he's doing and who he's appealing to. The other thing that makes this more interesting, and you just sort of referenced this, is that he is now running to stay out of jail. And so he's doubling down almost in a space of desperation to try to avoid what is inevitably coming with respect to convictions in one of these cases. Expect that these attacks are going to contain additional vitriol. Expect that they are going to contain additional hints around violence that are going to get louder and louder. And this is why you have a judge making the sort of boundaries that you do as part of his arraignment, because we all can see where this is heading. We know what this is and we know where it's going. We've seen this movie before and we know how it ends. The part of the problem well, is Well, we've seen like part one of this movie. Right. We're well, now in the, the turbocharged correct. like sequel to it. This is the Fast and Furious franchise of, of, of politics in 2023. I think it's important to understand that part of the reason we got here is because we did not call it out for what it was yeah. back when 20, in 2015 when we saw it for the first time. We did not label it was. These things have not occurred in a vacuum, Alex. And so it's important to understand right now it is critical that we bear no bones about labeling these things for what they are in terms of the deep anti-blackness and racism that are shrouding all of these remarks around these prosecutors that Donald Trump is making. All part of a trajectory. Charles Coleman, thank you for your time tonight. As always, Michelle, please hang around here because I want to talk to you about a very crucial election that's happening next week where Republicans have been trying not to say the quiet part out loud. Hmm, Where have we heard that before? But the voters are hearing it anyway. That is coming up. But first, a peek at Donald Trump's defense strategy from a seasoned prosecutor who knows his tactics well. 
former Manhattan DA Cy Vance joins me coming up next. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. One day after his latest arraignment, Donald Trump is making quite clear that he is counting on the Supreme Court to protect him from his multiple criminal indictments. Trump called on the justices to, quote, intercede in the 2024 presidential race because of what he is calling election interference. Trump argues that the 78 criminal charges filed against him by multiple prosecutors in separate jurisdictions, that those are all somehow part of a singular deep state plot a theory that may be rooted in panic or political strategy or both. Joining me now is someone who is very familiar with Trump's defense and delay tactics, former Manhattan DA Cy Vance. He spent years investigating Trump and his family, along, of course, with his successor, Alvin Bragg, who, as we know, issued Trump's first federal criminal indictment back in April. Mr. Vance, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. Um, Good evening. Good evening. Uh, First, your thoughts on this notion Trump is calling this election interference and suggesting the Supreme Court needs to intervene. Do you think it's going to get to that point? I think ultimately, of course, uh, Trump will take whatever convictions may occur against him to the Supreme Court on appeal. Uh, We litigated twice against Trump in the Supreme Court. Uh, Ultimately, we're successful in the Supreme Court, concluding that The president had to abide to the laws like everybody else and had to turn over his tax returns, which formed the basis for our indictment of of his business and his and his chief financial officer. But the Supreme Court was differently constituted uh, even as recently as two or three years ago. The Supreme Court today, I think, is much more likely to be favorable to some of the arguments in some of the cases that Trump may take up to the Supreme Court. The Manhattan case, for example, I think there are going to be somewhat novel issues of law as to whether a federal law can be used to bump up a uh, state misdemeanor to a felony. That's that's something that I see could see the Supreme Court uh, deciding against the prosecutor. I think in the other cases, the conduct uh, is so much clearly aligned with the charges, particularly in the most recent indictment, that I think even with this Supreme Court, uh, Donald Trump is not necessarily going to find a, uh, a safe haven. 
Yeah, it's interesting that you say that. I mean, I think a lot of folks looked at that Alvin Bragg indictment and thought there might be some concerns here. But given the court's record, just on other rulings vis-a-vis the House's investigation to January 6th, it almost seems like, yeah, John Roberts is is not necessarily on, on Trump, or at least the conservative justices are not necessarily on Trump's side on a lot of privilege concerns that are sure to come back up in the in the federal indictment uh, regarding his actions in and around January 6th. Well, in our case, um, really, when you look at it, the the court was nine to zero uh, against Trump's claim of privilege. Uh, uh, There were subtleties which divided the opinions, but on the issue of whether or not he was essentially immune from investigation uh, for his conduct as a private citizen, even while he was president, the Supreme Court was, was clear and unanimous. We do have a different Supreme Court. Uh, I, I think that is, you know, that needs to be calibrated into the thinking of of, of all the litigants. But I do think, listening to your prior uh, your prior panelists, we are in dangerous times. Uh, this is a time where judges, particularly, are going to be faced with how to manage a defendant who is a former president who will push them to the edge. Uh, mm. Ultimately, I think the control of Donald Trump in the next eighteen months is going to lie in the hands of the courts. They're going to be reluctant to jail him for violating court orders for fear that will perhaps cause uh, you know, uh, riots, as they might some other litigant. Uh, so, but they're going to have to find a way uh, to respect the authority of the court in the process, which is which is critical to what happens in the next eighteen months, uh, and hopefully without uh, exploding this already volatile situation into something that is unmanageable. Yeah, I, I, I think that that's such a wise assessment that it's really going to be in great part in the hands of the court. I wonder, given the judge's cautions that, uh, to the Trump during his arraignment, do you think he's already violated some of the terms uh, of his bail? Yesterday, or I guess it was today, he he posted, if you go after me, I'm coming after you. He's on the stump right now or just finished being on the stump in Alabama calling prosecutors, you know, deranged and all other manner of names. I mean, does this count as a violation of of the terms of his bail agreement? Well, I'm sure that the court and their court law clerks are sitting around tonight asking that very same question. Uh, And in some sense, uh, the courts are going to give him uh, leeway uh, because they are going to respect his First Amendment rights as far as they go. But I think that um, quite honestly, there were things that uh, Trump said with regard to Alvin Bragg that I thought uh, would be a trigger for the court to impose severe sanctions. Uh, how severe is really up to the court? But I, I think he's crossed the line. Uh, the question is, the courts are dealing with a very volatile situation. They have to balance their authority uh, and control of their courtroom with a, with a unprecedentedly, extremely volatile situation, which requires them to be not just judges, but readers of the community and the community reaction. Yeah, it's a very difficult position to be in, to say the least. Um, Mr. Vance, you know, given your former uh, position as as uh, as a former DA, I wonder what you think about the order of operations here. We're awaiting a potential indictment from Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis. There are, as you are well aware, several indictments floating around here. What should be the order of operations and what do you expect in, in terms of whether the federal case goes before any of the state cases? Well, 
I, early on in my investigation of the Trump organization, deferred to the federal prosecutor for, for literally a year. I think it was mistaken for me to do that because ultimately the Justice Department walked away from its investigation. Uh, but if, but I thought it was the right move at the time. Alvin Bragg, as I apparently has indicated that he would agree to uh, uh, Jack Smith's case going first. I think that makes a lot of sense. I think prosecutors need to uh, work with each other as courts need to work with each other, particularly when we have overlapping uh, multiple judicial schedules that need to be to be managed. Uh, I think uh, Ms. Willis, uh, my, my expectation is uh, because her case was indicted last, uh, if it is indicted, then it will go last. But really, I think the question is going to be, is, is, is D.A. Bragg going to give uh, Prosecutor Smith the opportunity to proceed forward? Will he be OK with that? My sense is he will, because I think my sense is D.A. Bragg recognizes, though, although he has great confidence in, the, in his case, uh, that the the. Federal case really is uh, the most important case in the country right now that needs to be managed with as little outside distraction as uh, as can be achieved. Yeah, I mean, I would go so far as to say one of the most important cases of my lifetime. Former Man- Manhattan DA Cy Vance, I'm so deeply appreciative of your time and thoughts tonight, sir. Thanks for thanks for spending some time with me on this Friday night. Thank you, Alex. Great to be here. We still have more ahead tonight. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is throwing classrooms into chaos just days before school begins. We are going to talk with someone who is in the crosshairs of the governor's latest salvo in his war on woke. That is coming up. Plus, the state of Ohio goes to the polls next week, but Republicans don't actually want voters to know what they're voting on. We're going to explain what is happening over there coming up next. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com slash win. Hey, everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Next Tuesday, the citizens of Ohio will vote on a ballot measure called Issue 1, and it could make or break Ohioans' ability to enshrine reproductive freedom into law. But if you watch the ads from the group pushing Issue 1, you probably wouldn't get that at all. Doctor, I'm a mom, and I'll be voting yes on Issue 1. The groups that oppose Issue 1 brag on social media about abolishing parental rights. Take away parents' ability to be informed and to make decisions for their children. It's obvious. The reason these groups are in Ohio is to encourage sex changes. These special interest groups want to allow minors to get sex changes without parental consent. Out-of-state special interests that put trans ideology in classrooms and encourage sex changes for kids are hiding behind slick ads. Don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. 
Even one of the state officials who introduced issue one to begin with, Ohio's Republican Secretary of State, Frank LaRose. For months, even Frank LaRose dismissed that the idea that issue one had anything to do with abortion. Or at least that is what Frank LaRose said publicly. But then this May, Mr. LaRose was caught on video in a private meeting with supporters saying the quiet part out loud. Some people say this is all about abortion. Well, you know what? I'm pro-life. I think many of you are as well, right? And this is about, this is 100% about keeping a radical pro-abortion amendment out of our Constitution. The left wants to jam it in there this coming November. And so, yes, it's about abortion. Yes, it is about abortion. Yes. Well, there you have it. Conservatives in Ohio are hiding the ball here. They are pretending that issue one is about minors getting sex changes and trans ideology taking over the classroom. And they are doing that because they know their position on abortion is deeply, deeply unpopular. Now, there is currently another ballot measure that Ohioans are slated to vote on in November. And that ballot measure would enshrine the right to abortion into the state constitution. And that measure is wildly popular. When the groups dropped off the signatures to get that measure on the ballot this July, they had to deliver those signatures by the truckload. New polling by USA Today and Suffolk University found that 58% of Ohio voters support that measure. 58% of Ohio voters want abortion access protected in the state constitution, and the measure only needs more than 50% to pass. So conservatives dreamed up their own ballot measure, and that's issue one. And it would change Ohio state law to make it so that you would need more than 60 percent of the vote to change the state constitution, sort of a filibuster threshold for the popular vote. And that is called moving the goalposts. It is plainly anti-democratic. Add that to the fact that the issue one folks have scheduled the vote on this in August to preempt the November vote that would enshrine abortion access in the state constitution. Now, there hasn't been a statewide vote on a single issue in Ohio in August in nearly 100 years. I mean, just this year, Republicans in Ohio made it against the law to hold elections at all in August and then turned around months later and made a special exception for this one vote. Just this one. Why? Well, here's Frank LaRose, the Republican Ohio Secretary of State and one of the main proponents of issue one, the man who supported that initial ban on August elections. Quote, August special elections generate chronically low turnout because voters aren't expecting an election to occur. Interest groups often manipulatively put issues on the ballot in August because they know fewer Ohioans are paying attention. Well, now, Frank LaRose. We are going to talk about all of this anti-democratic gamesmanship in Ohio and how it is a blueprint for the Republican Party's plan to reshape the nation. That's coming up next. So August is an unusual month to hold a very important special election. But Tuesday's referendum in Ohio, known as Issue 1, being held in the middle of the summer, well, that might very well be by design. In her latest piece, Michelle Goldberg writes, it's one that the anti-abortion movement hopes most citizens don't notice. It's a vote that demonstrates why reproductive rights and the preservation of democracy are intertwined. She continues, the measure's import may not be immediately clear to voters, but it is meant to thwart a November ballot initiative that will decide whether reproductive rights should be constitutionally protected in Ohio, where a sweeping abortion ban is tied up in court. 
Goldberg warns if the right prevails on issue one, and probably even if it doesn't, you can expect to see the blueprint repeated in other places. Joining me again tonight is Michelle Goldberg, opinion columnist for The New York Times. Michelle, thanks for being here. This is such an important story because, yes, it's important in terms of reproductive freedoms, but just the anti-democratic nature of what is happening here, beginning first, well, I mean, where to begin, but the Republican Party was like, no, no, no more August elections. It's it's just it disenfranchises voters in a way. Right. And then for this one thing. Except this time. Except this thing, when it's a means to our ends, we can do it. I mean, do you think the outrageousness of these devices is actually going to redound to progressives' favors, that, that it's actually going to turn more people out in the process? Well, I think only if people know that it's happening. Yeah. Because they put it in August on purpose when people are paying and people aren't used to voting in August. They're sort of their attention is elsewhere and they'd rather think about anything else. And so, yes, I think that if they understand what's happening, then it will be galling to people. And it's worth noting that progressives are angry about this. But you also have a significant number of Republicans, you know, Bob Taft, you don't get more Republican than that in Ohio, right? Like John Kasich have both said, have both come out against this because of how flagrantly anti-democratic it is. And so what you've seen in some of the polls, you see some polls that show most people are against issue one, but there's one poll that shows a slight majority, I think it's like one point in favor of it, but the same poll shows majority support for adding reproductive rights to the Ohio Constitution. So people aren't necessarily so they're not making the connection. That issue one is actually... Is meant to foreclose that. But yes. it, I mean, even beyond abortion, I mean, what it seeks to do is basically create a filibuster threshold for the popular vote. That's not how the framers intended it. You didn't need to have like a 60% majority to to, to get something like a... a And I think the context for this is that Ohio is one of those states, I mean, it's a conservative state, but not as conservative as the state legislature, right? The state legislature is so highly gerrymandered that you have this Republican supermajority that is far more extreme than the populace. You have, meanwhile, you have a Supreme Court that has, you know, also with these three judges um, appointed by a president who lost the popular vote, who's instituted this very unpopular regime on the country. Ohio has, you know, Ohio is not Alabama, right? But Ohio has basically Alabama-style abortion laws, even though right now it's tied up in court, right? Ohio was the state where that 10-year-old rape victim famously had to flee and go to Indiana. There is no reason to think that this is what Ohio voters want. And in fact, the governor, the Republican governor who signed the bill has said, well, we should really amend it. It goes farther than the voters want. But the voters don't really have very much other than a referendum to make their voices heard. And so what you see is that because Republicans see where public sentiment is, rather than bow to public sentiment, they want to change the rules to disenfranchise the Yeah, majority. I mean, they've taken away the tools of representative democracy. Right. And it's sense. not just Ohio, I mean, because this is coming in other places. What we've seen everywhere, you know, there's been six ballot referendums on abortion since um, since the Dobbs decision, and the pro-choice side has won all of them. And so there's been this move to have kind of Michigan-style referendum in lots of different states, and because it's the one way that people can have their voice heard. And so all over the country, you see Republicans saying, we have to change the rules of yes. how ballot initiatives right. work. Right. Oh, oh, the voters have found a lever with which they can make their voice. Right. We've got to shut it down. We've got to take it away from them. I mean, to, to your point, and you mentioned this in your article, the, the gerrymandering in Ohio, the fact that the state representation, that, that, that the state house is no longer representative of the state, right? Ohio's voter preference over the past 10 years splits about 54% Republican and 46% Democratic. But under the maps, 
Republicans control 67 of 99 state house seats and 26 of the 33 state seats. They're taking a kind right. of blushing pink state and turning it deep red. Right. To your I point, they're making Ohio into Alabama, and that's yes. entirely the point. And also, I mean, speaking of Alabama, you know, the Ohio Supreme Court keeps saying that these maps are unconstitutional. And the Ohio legislature keeps saying, well, you know, try to stop us. And then you had two Trump judges on a federal court basically say that the that the recent, recent elections had to happen under these unconstitutional maps. So the the ways in which democracy is being thwarted are it's just, you know, it's very, very layered. This is the one opportunity, this coming referendum in November, for the voters to make their voices heard. And that's why they want to shut that out. And off. I think to your point, even if it doesn't succeed, Republicans elsewhere are going to say, hey, it didn't work there, but man, did they come close. Maybe we try it here. Yeah. I mean, and they're already planning it, right? We're going to see there's this is happening. There's plans for this in Missouri, in Florida, Arizona. Um, th this is the kind of next wave for the anti-abortion movement. Oh, Lord. Michelle Goldberg, thank you for chronicling these unusually awful times uh, <laughs> in such eloquence. Uh, it's great to see you. Thanks thank for you. your time. Double time tonight. When we come back, thousands of Florida's best and brightest students are getting the rug pulled out from underneath them by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and his culture war with just days to go before school starts. That's next. That's part of our course catalog. It's being offered. I think they have taken it back. I, I think that's a mistake, and I'll bet you it'll end up being offered. That is uh, Governor Ron DeSantis today pushing back on an earlier announcement from the College Board that Florida's Department of Education had effectively banned AP psychology in the state because AP psychology violates Florida's Parental Rights in Education Act. That is also known as the Don't Say Gay Law. The College Board, which administers the AP courses, said in a statement yesterday that Florida school districts are free to teach AP psychology only if it excludes any mention of sexual orientation and gender identity. The College Board said it cannot modify the course in response to laws that would censor college-level standards. But the idea of no more AP psychology in the entire state of Florida has stirred up some controversy here. So the Florida Education Commissioner just a few hours ago fired back with a statement insisting that the department believes that AP psychology can be taught in its entirety in a manner that is age and developmentally appropriate. But that sort of leaves a lot of questions there, doesn't it? Specifically, what does the state of Florida think is age and developmentally appropriate? And does that involve any mention of sexual orientation and gender identity? Now, so far, the College Board is focused on the part of the statement that says AP psychology may be taught in its entirety. But what does that actually mean for the teachers who need to begin school in a matter of weeks? Joining me now is Rachel Chapman, a high school teacher in Orlando, Florida, who has been teaching AP psychology for the past 17 years. Ms. Chapman, thank you for being here. I know it is not easy to talk um, perhaps critically about what's going on in the state of Florida if you are employed in the state of Florida. So I, I really appreciate you coming on television tonight. Let me just first ask, I mean, what is going on in your classroom? How are you preparing for the next year? 
It's kind of difficult right now because everything is still up in the air. There's a lot of change, a lot of movement still happening. So there's a still great unknown to what is this year going to be looking like. Our students start next week, and we're still not entirely sure what's going to happen. And this new information coming from the state is kind of muddying the waters a little bit. So it's really difficult for me to prepare in the way that's necessary for my students starting next week. For people who didn't take AP Psych, I'm one of them. Can you just explain why it's necessary to have content that addresses uh, gender and sexual orientation in an AP Psych class? Excellent. AP Psychology is all about the study of the human mind and behavior. And when we try to understand human behavior, we need to look at it from multiple lenses. And by looking at it through these multiple lenses, we can understand all of humanity. And to take out bits and pieces, we're missing out important aspects about what makes psychology psychology, what makes us us. So it's not like a pick and choose. We can't just decide we're going to look at certain parts of ourselves. We need to look at all of it. What do you think is, I mean, what do you think is behind the state saying, yeah, you can't do that anymore in an AP psychology class in the state of Florida? I mean, what does that signal to you? It's it's really difficult to really interpret what they mean. Um, we don't know if they're doing that because they don't want discussion at all about gender and sexuality. We don't know if they want a reduced it, and it's what what do they want? And when we hear that message from them, not to include it, it really makes me wonder: Do we want all um, discussion about these individuals out of the classroom entirely? I just it to to the outside world. This reminds me of the Stop Woke Act, which really chilled any discussion of race, racism, institutional racism, slavery. I mean, basic sort of questions about how you teach history in the state of Florida are kind of up for grabs because of the vagueness of the law and the sort of um, haphazard way with which it's enforced. And I wonder if the same might be happening in the field of psychology or the teaching of AP psychology in in. in classes, that, the, that it remains purposefully vague to have effectively a chilling uh, effect on, on teachers and, and lesson plans. Are you worried about your ability to teach going forward? I do have concerns. Teachers love clarification. Teachers thrive on information. And we need that clarification to make sure that we are are not ourselves going to be getting into trouble. Walking on eggshells in a classroom is never helpful for students. It's not going to help them understand what we're trying to talk about. So clarification is so important. The vagueness of what's happening right now is really putting us in a situation where we cannot prepare and we can't teach effectively. I mean, this is not the, uh, this is obviously not the only AP course that's come under fire in terms of or intersected with Governor DeSantis's agenda. This the same is true notoriously for the AP African American Studies class. I mean, I kind of wonder if you start targeting these advanced placement courses and the students who take them, what does that say about the level of education in Florida? I mean, what does that do for, to parents who are looking to get a great education for their kids in Florida public schools, does it make them want to take their kids out? I mean, what are you hearing from parents whose, whose children are victims of the, the sort of culture war agenda here? 
it's it's complicated because there are many parents who are concerned. Are their students going to be competitive when it comes to college? Are they going to be competitive when it comes to career readiness? Um, but at the same time, I really want to let people know that Florida teachers are hard workers. Yeah. We're, we're really good at what we do, and we are going to do what we can to do what is best for the students to make sure they're getting the highest quality education that we are able to give them. That is such an important caveat, and I have been down to Florida a lot. The people who are dedicated to teaching in that state are American heroes. And, um, you know, my hat's off to you for bearing through this. Rachel Chapman, thank you so much for joining us. Good luck down there. We will be following what is going on down there. Thank you very much. That is our show for this evening.